You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. The new International Spy Museum has now been open for a little over four months, and if you visited, we thank you. If you haven't yet, what are you waiting for? You also might have noticed that it's been quite some time since we've had our normal programming here at the museum. The evening and daytime programs where we bring in some of the best people in the world of intelligence to speak to you, a live audience. Well, there's a reason for that. We were building a museum, and then we were fixing and tweaking all the things that will always go wrong with a project of this size. But it's now the fall, and we are gearing back up for a full season of programs. You can find our full calendar events online at spymuseum.org, but here are some of the highlights. This Wednesday, September 18th, is the public program for The Nuclear Spies. Our public programs are always different than our podcast, so you won't just be hearing the same thing again. Plus, you can come and ask me questions, tell me I'm totally wrong about everything, or call me a tree-hugging liberal commie in person and not just online. Next Monday, September 23rd, we will be looking back at the Berlin blockade and airlift 70 years after the last American flight with one of the original American members of the airlift crew, C-54 flight engineer Ralph Dione. He'll be joined by Bern von Koska, the curator of the Allied Museum in Berlin, and GW's own Hope Harrison, historian and expert on Berlin and the Cold War. And on Thursday, September 26th, we're having a special screening of CNN Declassified, Untold Stories of American Spies. This will be several days before you can watch it on TV. Following the screening, Spy Museum historian curator Dr. Vince Houghton, though that's me, will lead a discussion with host Mike Rogers, a former FBI agent and the former chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. There's much more coming this fall. I'll be mentioning a lot of it as we move through the fall on the podcast, but check out the event calendar on spymuseum.org. And now I'd like to introduce the first historian curator of the International Spy Museum, Dr. Alexis Albion. She is now the curator slash historian of the museum uh, under the development of this current new iteration of the Spy Museum. She was a lead curator. Um, we worked very closely together, and well, I guess we could say we butted heads for about five and a half years thinking about what content and how we wanted to present the content in this new museum. Since we're talking about my book today, it, I could interview myself, but we decided against that, uh, probably for the right reasons. Uh, so Alexis is going to take it from here. Alexis? Thank you so much, Vince. Um, that was a great introduction and I think is a fair reflection. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, today, um, it's all about you. It's all about the book. As opposed to um, other, other podcasts. So the book is The Nuclear Spies, America's Atomic Intelligence Operation Against Hitler and Stalin. I believe it came out just a day or so ago, right? right yeah, so just Sunday, September 15th. Right, uh, it's available now, yeah. all, all good bookstores and online and so on. It's actually your second publication in just a few months. That was, uh, that was by accident, but yeah. But you know, that's uh, pretty incredible. Um, I'm very impressed 
quite jealous, <laughs> but this is quite a different book oh, yeah. than your other. Um, now, this is actually uh, your dissertation um, that you turned into this book. And so um, it, it's quite a different type of book. I could say it's, you know, it's, it's a very serious topic and it, it is, you know, geared a little bit more toward um, more of an academic audience and so on. Yet, of course, obviously, you've done a lot, I'm sure, to change your dissertation into something that is accessible to the public. So I don't want to put people off no. reading it by any, any means. But anyway, um, you know, the topic is the nuclear spies. But interestingly, I think when people hear that, they're thinking of... Rosenbergs. Rosenbergs, Rosenbergs spies. Yeah. But the spies in this case are the Americans, right? right? Um, Americans actually spying on um, other nuclear programs. In this case, you're looking at the Nazis in World War II and the Soviet nuclear program right after World War II. Um, so we'll get into that, but I, I just thought I'd read the very first sentence because it's a great way of um, starting out your book and also starting out this discussion, which is the storyline is well known, but not necessarily well understood. So what's the storyline here? Sure. And, I mean, and, and what's known yeah. and what's not well understood. Well, what's crazy about this is that if you go to a bookstore or online or anywhere else, there are dozens and dozens of books about the American nuclear intelligence operation against the Germans in World War II. And there are hundreds of books about the U.S. nuclear intelligence operation against the Soviets in the early Cold War. So that's why I say the storyline is well known, right? Yeah. It's it's. People have heard, perhaps, of the Alsace mission. People have heard of the mission against the Norwegian heavy water plant. We have right. an ex exhibit here in the museum about mm -hmm. that. People certainly know about our attempt to predict when the Soviets were going to detonate their first atomic bomb and some of the spine that went into that. Lots of books. Um, number one, no one's ever done it together. And that, that, that first seems like, well, big deal. You kind of threw two things together. That's into, but it really matters in this case, mainly because these aren't programs separated by decades. Mm -hmm. These are literally the same people working under the same kind of broad bureaucratic framework. Now the names of the agencies have changed, but it's still the same broad bureaucratic framework. Um, and working within the kind of the same paradigm, right? This is nuclear weapons are brand new in the 1940s. People are kind of figuring out as they go along. People are figuring out this brand new type of intelligence called scientific intelligence right. that had never existed before. Right. Uh, and it's not just because of nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are important to this argument, but it's mm -hmm. because of a lot of the scientific developments during World War II and right beforehand, like radar development and cryptanalysis and, and certainly things focused on how scientists were pulled into national security, so much so during World War II that all of a sudden, if you're, if you're going to want to be a good intelligence agency, if you're going to predict what your other countries are doing, you better be paying attention to science. Right. Not just technology, but science. So, I mean, this is a book that about the, the uh, American effort to look into the Nazis' um, nuclear program and the Soviets, but it, it, it's really a book about the development of scientific intelligence, or the right? Attempted right. embryonic yeah. you know, so, abortive effort you know, to do that. I have to say, that's a term that I would say I'm not, I wasn't really particularly familiar with. Other people may not be. I, you know, would you talk a little bit about what that term means? Sure. And, you know, how it is, and you make an argument in your book about how it's different than other types of, of intelligence, how collecting it, it is different and, of course, posed very novel and new cha new novel challenges for the Americans. We're very good today at, at conflating science and technology. Technology is something that's been around forever, so is science. But they've never really been one in the same. Research and development, science and technology, these are terms that go together today. But if we try to apply these to any time before World War II, it, it's a bit anachronistic. The fact that science and technology did not go hand in hand prior to the Second World War. You had science and you had technology. I mean, kind of think back to ancient history, right? The Romans were really good at technology. They mm -hmm. could build stuff. The Greeks were exceptionally good at science. Right. They didn't really overlap all that much. And that mm -hmm. was also true going all the way up into the First World War, where a lot of things that were technological developments were empirically built. That's a fancy way of saying trial and error. Mm. So the bridges that were built weren't built with an understanding of Newtonian physics. They were built, and if they fell down, they built them a different way. And if they fell down, they built them a different way. And eventually they'd work. That was true for most military or national security 
hardware or things that mattered, whether it was weapon systems or economic systems or anything else. That is until the 1930s, really, mm -hmm. when all of a sudden things that were happening inside laboratories had almost immediate impact on the battlefield or immediate impact for broad national security purposes. And of course, the atomic bomb is a great example of this. From conception in, you could argue, 1938 was really when people said, oh man, we can build a bomb out of this. Two seven years later, you have a working weapon that ends wars, arguably. That's really fast. That's exceptionally fast. Mm -hmm. If you think of the fact that, I like using this example when I teach this concept, the, the idea for a steam engine came around about 300 BCE. So 300 years before kind of the birth of Christ for that, or the common era is how we use that term now. But the first workable steam engine wasn't until 1715 when Thomas Newcomen built the work. So you're talking about centuries and centuries and centuries between the idea and the physical conception of this idea. Then it took another 100 plus years before it was miniaturized enough to be put inside a train or inside a steamship. Really slow, we talk about this as, as evolutionary change. Well, what science allowed technology to do is to move into the realm of revolutionary change, where a scientific development all of a sudden meant a game-changing technological development. So all of a sudden, you can't just wait for the technology to be built. Technological intelligence is counting tanks and how good is the armor on the front of a tank and how, long, how far can this airplane fly? You know, what is its fuel capacity? Scientific intelligence is about getting inside the laboratories. It's about getting inside the classrooms. It's about understanding how good a scientific curriculum is for a certain country. Where are they going to be in 10 years? How many PhDs are they going to develop? Where, where are the cream of the crop coming from? Because it's not like you're waiting 100, 200, 1,000 years for science to turn into technology. Mm -hmm. It could be immediate. I mean, today you can think about it, right? From conception of the laboratory, it could be weeks till you have a game-changing thing like AI or quantum computing or something to that effect. So scientific intelligence to kind of answer the question a very long way, right? Yes. I was just saying, thinking yeah. to myself, I ask a simple question. There's no such and, thing. And, and you know, yeah. you, you went back to the Romans. Right, yeah. There's, there's no such thing. I had a friend of mine ask, like, can you explain how World War I started? I'm oh, like, well, well you know. <laughs> in, in the Dark Ages, everyone looked at kings. Now, um, so the, the short, long answer is scientific intelligence is more difficult Number one, because there's nothing to count, there's nothing to look at. You're kind of trying to predict future capabilities. But at the same time, you can't just do it with James Bond, right? You can't just parachute in a spook that's really good at you know, doing covert operations or, or human intelligence. Because the vast majority of spies, vast majority of intelligence officers, are not versed in these levels of science. Now, and even if you have a really good scientist, if it's a botanist, they're not going to be particularly well versed in nuclear science. Right. So it's not just, hey, we got this really smart guy who has a degree in science. If we want to do nuclear intelligence, we better tell, spend a nuclear physicist in. If we want to do things about chemical weapons, we better have a chemist. Right. So they just don't pop up on trees, right? right. And, and so convincing someone who is well versed in science to want to join an intelligence agency and making them a very good human intelligence collector, it's doubly difficult. Right. And, and it yeah. makes me think that. In a way, you know, there's quite a lot of luck involved here that it was during World War II when people from all different areas were willing to right. set their careers aside in order to do something for the country. And, and that's what we, we see in your story as well. Well, there's nothing more uniting than Hitler, right? Right. I mean, that, that brings right. everyone together. So we actually do see this development of this field of scientific intelligence with some people who are very experienced right. and um, have real expertise in, in these areas that they need who actually are willing to go on missions and turn out to be very good in intelligence And, and well. it's helpful to have informal advisors like Albert Einstein. Yes. <laughs> you know, what should we do, Albert? So, so I, I, I want to get on to the German yeah. case study, but I think this is interesting. You know, how, as I said, this evolved from your dissertation. So this is kind of, you know, you spent years uh, developing this. And I, I do think it's interesting, you know, how did you get into it? I can tell just from listening to you that you might have an interest in science, but you know, how did you get into this? And I, and I just wanted to press this a little bit, like, you know, even like, you know, how, how did you get into this topic and how did you go about doing it? You know, something right. about your research and the sources sure. that you used. The, the quick and dirty answer, if there is one, uh, is this, this, and everyone will tell you who's done a PhD in history that what I came out with was not my intention going in. And my original idea was to try to understand why the CIA fell so flat on its face in its early years, particularly with nuclear intelligence, because 
considering the, the lesson of Pearl Harbor, right? The whole idea was the CIA was created to prevent another Pearl Harbor, to prevent surprise, strategic surprise. And at that time period in the late 1940s, the concept was let's not get surprised with a nuclear Pearl Harbor. So how did we screw this up so badly? That was kind of the premise I was starting looking at. And then I kind of looked at nuclear and scientific intelligence through basically modern day. And I kept looking at it and I'm like, man, we're really bad at this. Is it fair for me to criticize the American program against the Soviets if we really haven't gotten it right all the way until today? Mm -hmm. It's not that we don't get it right, it's that it's still very hard to do. With modern measurements and signatures intelligence and, and all the satellites and all the sensors that we have, we still have some trouble today. Certainly with arguments about Iran and how far along, it's not just political, there are arguments within the IC about how far along Iran is in their weapons mm -hmm. program, how far along North Korea is in their ability to do something. And that's, again, not just political. These are technical arguments. And so why are why is this so hard? And then I kind of really took a deep dive into the scientific intelligence idea and kind of figured out what made it so difficult. Mm -hmm. And then I go, well, there's only one I really haven't looked at, right? And it's the Germans in World War II. And then I was surprised to find out we did a really good job against the Germans. We actually figured out where they were. And I said, well, what, what made that different? Th that's the anomaly, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I approached this case study originally thinking the Soviets were the anomaly, that we screwed up against the Soviets. And it turned out the Germans were the anomaly, that we got it right once, and that's the weird circumstance. It's actually getting this right. And at that point, I'm like, Pearl Harbor, be damned. I mean, I'll I can deal with that some other day. I need to figure out why we got one right and why we got one wrong. Now, the problem with that is you're dealing with two things that are incredibly difficult to research. One is intelligence, and I don't care if it's World War II or not. It's still, there's still a lot of things that are classified. And certainly early Cold War, there's still a lot that's classified. And the nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. which is a whole nother problem, independent of, but when you combine the two, it becomes really stupid. And so a lot of things were redacted even from six, seven decades ago, and like frustratingly redacted, where you would be reading a, the Office of Scientific Intelligence, which is what CIA created like two months before the Soviets got the bomb. They have a really great kind of internal history they did. And you're reading along and it's getting juicy and it's getting good. And you turn the page and it says next 76 pages redacted in mm -hmm. full and you just want to throw it in the fire. And then the bigger problem during World War II was that Leslie Groves, who was the head of the American, you know, you know him as the head of the atomic bomb program. He was also head of the American intelligence program. He wrote nothing down. Like he had a kind of a James Angleton sense of security in that if nothing was written down, nothing could be stolen. Mm -hmm. So he would have conversations with George Marshall, the chief of staff of the army, have conversations with Eisenhower, conversations with Van Iver Bush, who was the head of science for the United States, and just keep it all in his head. And all we know about, he was told, was that he went and talked to some of his underlings, kind of passed along the information, or later on wrote things in memoirs. And so, like, so there's no documents, right? There's not a lot of primary source material from some of the most important decisions that were made. So I went with a scorched earth mentality. Everything, everything under the sun. Um, memoirs, uh, contemporary journal articles, contemporary magazines, newspapers, everything. There are some documents about Alsace mission in the Department of Energy and then within OSS, mm -hmm. um, within the CIC, with Counterintelligence Corps and the Army. There's certainly Manhattan Project documents. Yeah. Um, there are things that we can get potentially from the other side, uh, from allies, from the British particularly. Um, there are things like um, primary source documents that are on the ten tangent of some of these things where people are reporting on this strange group that went through the lines. I uh, can't really identify who they were, but they were secret, mm -hmm. you know, and they go, oh, that's where they're supposed to be at that time. But even then, you run in, there's contradictions everywhere. Um, there were dates that were contradictory from the same guy, from different, you know, whether it was recollection or it was just mistakes. Um, there are a lot of interesting resources that weren't normally used for a intelligence dissertation. Um, AIP, actually in College Park, if you're around, the, the Atomic Institute of Physics has hundreds and hundreds of oral interviews of these physicists, and most of them are just about physics, but every so often they're about their time during the war. Um, there's a lot of great insights from that too. So I really, if you look at the bibliography for this, it's not like, there's a lot of primary sources, but it's just everything you could possibly think of. Um, my PhD advisor was very, very upfront with me. He's like, look, here's the philosophy. Someone can tell you you don't have the whole story, but don't let someone tell you you didn't find something that was there. So it's okay if 
physically you can't get to stuff or if it's been destroyed or it doesn't exist anymore and you can kind of you know presuppose what's missing but don't let anyone say you didn't look at this stuff and so your your argument's bad now that means an extra year in the archives yes. but it also means that I, I feel pretty covered mm -hmm. that I went and I looked at everything I could possibly look at I think it's very interesting what you said because I'm an intelligence historian and I do think that you know intelligence historians have to be particularly creative mm -hmm. in in looking for for sources um, but this idea that you know you've got to deal with the secrecy involved or the the lack of sources involved in intelligence and it's not that they're lack of sources but you don't know what what isn't there right. uh, that's the problem and then in this whole other area um, and and I, I mean what occurs to me is that you know secrecy um, has is this big obstacle here in both areas and it just it makes it doubly difficult and and it's a part of your story as well I think how secrecy tends to taint everything and actually in some ways distort mm -hmm. people's interpretations um, so let's get back to the Germans sure. uh, because that's part one of your story and and you know I was really struck by um, the threat you know this idea of this atomic gap um, between what, what German scientists were doing and what American scientists were doing. And, um, you know, I mean, I think some people know this story about, you know, this fear of the Germans developing a bomb. But I was, I was really struck by some of the quotes, if I can find them here, um, about how specific people were about this threat, about this atomic um, gap. Here's um, something by, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing it, Gutschmidt. Goodsmith, yeah. Goodsmith, and I'm not sure exactly when he's writing this, but... Right after the war. Right after the war, um, writing about the fear mm -hmm. and, and how, um, just how real that fear was for American um, scientists that the Germans would develop a bomb, Hitler would have, would be able to uh, launch a radioactive attack. You know, the Germans must know they thought that Chicago was at that time the heart of our atom bomb research. Hitler, loving dramatic action, would choose Christmas Day to drop radioactive materials on the city. I mean, you know, they were really imagining something right. catastrophic. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, let's, let's just kind of take it from there, just about how scared U.S. Right. scientists were about the idea of a Nazi bomb. Well, I, mean, I think to, to understand this book and to really kind of appreciate it, you kind of have to take what I kind of argued in the other book that came out this year is that ignore hindsight. Ignore that you know the end of the story, right? We know they don't build a bomb, but the scientists at the time had no idea. In fact, they thought they were at least two years ahead of us. They thought they had the greatest scientists in the world. Right. And if you understand, you know, people look at the Manhattan Project and the scientists, a lot of them are household names today, but they weren't in 1940. Their household names because they built the atomic bomb before the Germans did. Now, some of them people knew, like Fermi and Oppenheimer and others. But the real cream of the crop scientists were still in Germany. Werner Heisenberg is the name that kind of will cut, will be, will cut right to the chase, right? He, he is not only the person who was considered a peer or better by most of the American scientists, the kind of the peer of Einstein, but he had trained about half of the Manhattan Project scientists. He was their PhD advisor. So he was seen, revered as the smartest guy in the room. He was really the guy who kind of figured out quantum mechanics, made it actual, you can do stuff with it, like electricity and computers and eventually stuff like that. So he was the guy everyone was terrified of. And he stayed in Germany. And he really, the, the, the reason he stayed in Germany, as he told everyone, was that he was a German nationalist, that he truly believed that Germany needed to win this war. He wasn't a Nazi, but Germany was his home. He was going to fight for Germany. And so we're like, well, if this guy is dedicated to building a bomb, we know how good German industry is because they've been rolling through France and everywhere else with their tanks and planes and submarines. We know their science is better than everybody in the world. And they started way before we did. Right. Because the Manhattan Project really doesn't get kicking until 1943. Yeah. You can maybe say late 42. And everyone assumed the Germans had begun back in 38 or 39. 
So the prediction of taking two or three years to build a bomb means the Germans may already have one. Right. Yeah. So that really comes across this, right. I mean, which, you know, I think, you know, we've heard a lot about the, the nuclear scare in right. the, 19, for the late 1940s and, and then afterwards in the Cold War. But, you know, amongst the scientific community, there's a real scare right now. Hitler with and a, a bomb. Right. And right? it being right, targeted on yeah. Chicago on right. Christmas Day. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty vivid. Um, and well, I, let, me, let me interrupt real quick. I even went to some German sources on this. Albert Speer, who was essentially the Vannevar Bush of the he was the head of research and development for the for the Third Reich, and in his memoir inside the Third Reich, he talks about this a little bit, and he says that without a doubt in his mind, and he knew Hitler really well, without a doubt in his mind, if Hitler had a bomb, he would have used it instantaneously. So the prediction you can go back in hindsight and say, well, if Hitler got the bomb, maybe he wouldn't use it for deterrence or whatever. Speer, who knew him better than anybody said the minute he got the bomb, he would have dropped it on probably London. You know, the ability to get it over to Chicago was one thing. But, and everyone understood this at the time, that this was Hitler. This was not someone who was going to sit on an atomic bomb. He was going to use it and use it right away. But it's also, you know, also we see is this incredible respect for German scientists. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, like you, as you just talked about, some of these famous names, these famous professors and the group of people, American scientists had studied with them, studied from them. They had real respect there and, and knew that their capabilities. And, and so the question is, why didn't actually the US um, effort against this start earlier? Why did it take so long to get going? I mean, well, we're talking I'll, about a couple I'll, years here. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of reasons. Given, given yeah. how uh, terrified, right. I think you used that word in here, um, these scientists were, why did it take so long to get this cop and going? Well, it's kind of one of the key problems in intelligence that exists to this very day is mm -hmm. dissemination, right? The ability to tell policymakers that this matters. Uh, it took a long time. I mean, people point to the Einstein letter, quote unquote, which yes. uh, 1939 letter to Franklin Roosevelt, signed by Albert Einstein, not written by him, written by Leo Szilard, um, who was Einstein's kind of invention partner, but no one knew the name Szilard. No one still really knows the name Szilard, but Einstein's name's on it. Everyone says, well, that started us really down the path. Not even close. Roosevelt read it and said, oh, geez, this sounds kind of bad. Why don't we do some laboratory investigation on, on about this? The British actually took it much more seriously. They created this thing called the Mod Committee, yep. and they came back and said, hey, look, this can be built. But it wasn't really until 1942 that they sent that over to the United States. Around this same time is when the United States started seeing the capability of the manufacturing process might actually work out. Um, I love this. You've got some um, numbers here of how much money the Americans actually spent <laughs> on atomic ridiculous. research. I think it, it really sums up here, you know, how in 1936, at the same time as sci American scientists were starting to really buzz about this, um, you've got only $600 was spent on purchasing uranium oxide. That's not 600 million. That's nope. not 600,000. Nope. This was the first, you, you name this as the first government appropriation $600. for atomic research. Yes. $600. Yes. Now, by 1941, that number has grown to 300,000. Of course, you know, in the 1940s, this is, that, that's a huge yes. um, increase there. Um, and so I can, we can see how it really started out as nothing. Right, absolutely. And that, that it wasn't an instant increase either. Right. It took a couple of years. And part of that, what really was interesting, I found, I wasn't surprised by why we were afraid of the Germans because of all the great stuff the Germans were perceived to have. But what I was interested to find out is one of the reasons that we were most terrified of the Germans at the time we were, which is in 1942, mm. was how far our program had moved on. Right. If it's theoretical, we're not going to be all that afraid. Right. But the minute Enrico Fermi at the University of Chicago creates a self-sustaining chain reaction, we said, oh, shit, this can be built. This is something that can, this is not theoretical anymore. Now we know this can be a bomb in which case we really stepped it in high gear when it comes to finding out what the Germans were up to. Right. But at that point, we're like, maybe we can build this. Um, that's what really got the fire going under the policymakers to appropriate the money for this kind of a mission. Right. And we have to remember that the United States wasn't in the war right. um, in those early days. So, And I, I think the way you put it here really struck me. If it could be done by the Americans, it could be done by the Germans. Or it already and, has been and done let's remember by the that. Germans, right? Let's just remember that because this comes back. Yes. Uh, in in your the second part of the book here, um, but you know that 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 was interesting to me. I mean, and again, it goes by if you know we have such respect for the Germans. If we can do it, my God, right. 
course they can because we're the ones we learn from them um and you know so i think once now now we start to get into actually how do you set up this process and it, it isn't smooth <laughs> by any means right it goes well, it's through opposite some of smooth really i mean you, you don't have anyone that knows what they're doing in either intelligence collection just basic intelligence I mean, this is this predates the oss this predates any kind of buildup of army intelligence or o and i so not only do you not have good scientific intelligence you don't have good intelligence intelligence right because the OSS, you know, Oso Social, for all the, you know, the books and the accolades given to Donovan's group, they didn't do a hell of a lot. No offense, OSS society. And so they did a lot in the Pacific. They didn't do a whole lot in the Atlantic. Um, SOE really kind of wins the war in that case. The Soviets, the SOE, when it kind of special operations. And so you have an organization, it's not modern day CIA, right? It's, it's, they're trying to figure out how to do intelligence. Right let alone scientific intelligence. And one of the things that strikes me here is some, you know, some of the real misperceptions here. And, and, and you can just tell that the, the analysts just are not really sure what they're doing. This sort of idea of, well, we're not getting anything. We're not getting from any information. So they must definitely be doing something, right? right? <laughs> well, there's some mirror imaging that's wonderful. Mm. Examples of mirror imaging where um, we censor everything. Right, we censor everything coming out of whether it's from universities or from journals or everything else. And the Germans don't at a certain point in the war. And Groves doesn't conclude that maybe they're not working on a bomb anymore. He concludes that it's disinformation. Mm. That the only way they would release it right. is to try to trick us. Because there's no way we would do it either. But my, one of my favorite stories is one of these early intelligence stories where the scientists decide well, there's no intelligence agencies that do this, so let's just let's just go kidnap Heisenberg. Yes. And it's Victor Weisskopf and Hans Bethe who are, if you think of if you think of nerdy scientists, they they basically are exactly that. And like, well, we'll just go over there and grab them and throw them in a car and bring them back here. And yes. they pass it along to the upper echelons, and they said, "Oh, hell no, you're not going to." I have do to say, that. you know, the, the way you describe this story, it is so preposterous yes. that anyone would think this would work. It, I feel like it kind of belongs in your other book right exactly <laughs> well they just don't know any better right, right. because th this isn't this is not the era of bond movies and whatever but they're they're kind of coming up with a kind of a bondian plan right. to do this and and they but they realize something that no one else does is that the regular intelligence organizations are not prepared to do this work because you don't have this meeting of the minds you have scientists who know science but don't know intelligence you have intelligence agencies who barely know intelligence but sure as hell don't know anything scientific so how do you find that Goldilocks, mm. that happy medium, to where people understand at least the basics of nuclear physics, but have a background in intelligence also? And that's they fortunately find that Goldilocks. Now, I have to give Grove some credit yeah. here um, because one of the, the, the lines that really jumped out at me here was that Groves did sort of, and it was actually... I mean, this was actually something that he what found quite terrifying was this idea that actually maybe the Germans, and again, it goes back to those respect for, for the scientists, they might be doing this in a completely different way right. than we're doing. And, and I, It's a wonderful again, line, I, I want to pull yeah. that out because yeah. it, it, it does come to bear when we get to the Soviet right. example, right? And, and again, it has to go back to the fact that, you know, we have such respect for the, for, the, for the Germans. We know they're smarter than we are. My God, they might be doing this completely differently. We're having all these problems. Right. We're having all these issues. This is our timeline, but yeah. they may have figured something out. Which, again, maybe, maybe we're looking for the wrong things, right? right? And which is why we're not getting anything here. So, and, and because, I mean, one of the questions is, you know, they do put the there's effort and we'll, we can go into the Alsace um, mission and so on and of course as we all know ultimately they don't find anything um, so you know why do they keep going they keep finding nothing right. right so why do they keep going why don't they ever come to the conclusion that you know I guess they aren't developing a bomb until they until they physically manage to get a hold of the people who right. are doing it and they tell them no right exactly well, I mean, and I think that's that's a really interesting concept in this. If you look at Leslie Groves, I mean, this is somebody who had a hard enough job to begin with. Build us the atomic bomb in a couple of years, right? Bring together the most egotistical geniuses in the world in one place. Build a weapon that's never just been theoretical up until this point. Not only that, but build a city in New Mexico. Yep. Build another city in Washington, Hanford. Build another city in Tennessee, Oak Ridge. Run these labs around the country. And juggle these personalities every one of what you know half of them have Nobel prizes right 
But on top of that, work American intelligence operations against the Germans yep. and prevent the Soviets from finding out what's going on. And so Groves gets a lot of grief for being kind of very gruff, for being very micromanaging, which he certainly was. But talk about a guy who could get things done. I mean, yeah. you know, and, but he's he he is this consistent figure in your in your oh, yeah. book, and I mean, he is kind of a hero of this Nazi effort here, anti-Nazi effort, um, which of course makes it kind of so extraordinary about what comes later. But right. you know, his what he's doing, like all the things that he's managing, his cons his perseverance here, um, the looking for the right people, making sure they're delivering the, the security um, concerns and so on. He, he's really a central figure here. We use the word central, which is interesting because one of the things that you look at dissertations, like what sets it apart from what comes before it. And really the argument in there that I, that I make um, that I don't think anyone else has really kind of touched upon was how much power was centralized under Leslie Groves. Yes. There's a lot of power certainly for building the bomb, but the intelligence power to the point where he could call up the chief of staff of the army and say, I need this stuff bombed. And to bomb that, to make sure the Germans don't know why we're bombing it, I need these four other cities bombed also. Or there's a almost operation that's in the middle of the book called Operation Harborage, um, where they almost gave Groves under the control of a lieutenant colonel, Boris Pash, who we can talk about, control over two army corps to cut off the French advance, which would have destroyed the post-World world, right? The whole idea of the French-American-British alliance. We were going to say, screw that. And we were going to cut off the French advance to beat the French into getting Werner Heisenberg because we didn't want a single French scientist who had communist ties to get his hands on Heisenberg. Mm. That's power. And the centralization, he was the decision maker, right? He is, he is the DNI, DCIA, you know, wrapped into one. He's, he is ultimate power in this case. And you do make this argument that centralization is really the key to the success. Yeah, I mean, of it's, this. it's really hard not, to, it's really hard to do this well unless you have one voice. And you can obviously, we can skip ahead to the fact that you can see that in the early Cold War, where there, even though you have a CIA, the DIA, you know, the, the, the DIA hasn't, doesn't exist yet. That's fine. There's not a lot of inter-service rivalry. But as far as intelligence is concerned, the director of the CIA has very little power mm. until really Alan Dulles takes over in the 1950s. Still trying to figure out what the CIA is, trying to figure out where its budget comes from, what power it has, all this stuff. And in 1949, they hadn't really figured that out yet. And so how do you have a centralized intelligence effort if you don't have any kind of centralized intelligence? Um, and that's the kind of the juxtaposition that we see pretty clearly there. So, you know, you do, um, one of the central themes here is what a success this was. And you can, you want to give a little summary of some of the things I did, but you have a whole chapter in here about Alsace. Yeah. Um, and go into quite a lot of detail. Well, right. Well, that's the, kind of, that's like the fun. That's the one that actually has some kind of narrative motion to it, mm. right, where it's an actual secret mission, you know, behind enemy lines where, uh, intelligence professionals were teamed up with scientists to go uh, sometimes behind enemy lines, sometimes right on the back, the heels. Uh, the story that Boris Pash, who was the head of the Alsace mission, tells about going into Paris, uh, that the first three vehicles into Paris were two French tanks and mm -hmm. an American Jeep carrying Boris Pash and some scientists. I mean, it's extraordinary how kind of behind, you know, they have snipers shooting at them. They, uh, when they finally caught up the Werner Heisenberg, Near the end of the war, they had entire SS divisions trying to surrender to a couple of American scientists and counterintelligence corps guys. So they were right in the middle of everything. Um, so it's fascinating. It's a fun narrative. Mm -hmm. um, you get to talk about Mo Berg. Oh, sure. Mo Berg is really one of the people that kind of seals the deal for our mm -hmm. understanding of the, the German nuclear program. Um, that famous moment where he has the pistol in his pocket talking to Werner Heisenberg comes after we have some very good evidence that the Germans aren't there yet. And Berg's job is basically to confirm that. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the drama of that event is a little overblown that um, the Americans had a because the Americans had captured a town, depending on if you're French or German, in French or Germany called Strasbourg. It's been passed back and forth about a hundred times. And that was the kind of the, the, the gold mine of information. Not only did it show that the Germans had basically given up mass scale work on the atomic bomb years ago, but it showed they were even behind where we were in 1943. They hadn't even built their first atomic reactor yet, um, which Enrico Fermi does at Chicago in 43. 
Incidentally, if you want to come on Wednesday, I will have a piece of graphite from the first ever nuclear reactor in the world from CP1. It's part of my little collection I'm bringing anyway. So when Berg was sent in to talk to Heisenberg, it was to confirm what we thought we knew already. But that was the final nail in the coffin. You know, so in December of 1944, the American intelligence apparatus, going all the way up to Franklin Roosevelt, understood mm -hmm. the Germans would not build a bomb. Right. And, and I mean, you know, make this very clear that they're 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 absolutely certain. Oh, 100% and in fact, certain. in fact, you know, they are they're kind of stunned right. by just how little progress had been made. I think you make a couple of you know, really interesting assertions here. I, I don't think you're making them. You're, you're, you're drawing them from, from the sources here. Um, I think this is Bush. He later estimated the Germans had only achieved 5% of what the Americans had accomplished in atomic research. Well, it's pretty extraordinary, given yeah. how far ahead they thought they were. Werner Heisenberg himself said that the Americans spent more on the Alsace mission than the Germans spent on the entire atomic bomb program in Germany. Which is to me is just fascinating, yeah. Um, and you know, and then I, you know, that should be the end of the book, right? You know, the Germans don't build the bomb. Alsace mission goes home. No reason to be there anymore. You know, the war is about to end. We all go home and have kids. The baby boomers are born, but that's obviously not what happens in real life. Well, uh, just before we get there, because yeah. you know, I, I just want to say, so I mean, one of your arguments is here. This was a huge success. Yeah. But I have to ask you if they spent all these resources to find out that there was actually nothing there. Is this a success or is this a, just a huge overestimation of the threat so, and lots of yes. resources <laughs> and people being thrown at finding out that nothing was happening? We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. I think that this is an interesting argument. I think it's an argument still made today a lot of different ways, not just about the atomic bomb program, but about the ideas is discovering information or intelligence about something not being there. Uh, you know, imagine how different life would be if there was a smoking gun that the Iraqis didn't have weapons of mass destruction, right? If there was a piece of evidence that we could, that even the Bush administration could go, yeah, all right, we can't pretend that it's there, right? It's absolutely no information there. So sometimes intelligence about what doesn't exist is as important or more important about intelligence that does. But you do make a point, right? Now, we had vastly problematic estimations <laughs> of the German program, yes. <laughs> but the whole point of creating an intelligence apparatus is to get right ones, right? Get to figure it out, to get the correct you know, analysis of where they are. Now, if we had a CIA back in 1939 who made a horrible estimate about the German program, you could argue that American intelligence fell flat on its face, but there was no American intelligence at the beginning of this estimate. This was scientists, this was us kind of waxing philosophic based on what we knew coming out of Germany, something called the scientific underground, which was yep. kind of scientists passing along information. We, you know, it wasn't, it was a failure of people whose job it wasn't to do intelligence collection. But once you create an apparatus for this, you create an, it's not an agency because it doesn't really have that kind of formality. Once you create an institution to do intelligence collection, they do exactly what they're supposed to do. They find out mm -hmm. the status of the German atomic bomb program. In that case, the status is it's, there isn't one. But you know, it's almost the success of finding a lack of a nuclear program there that that kind of helps to explain why... Oh, it screws us in the end. That, oh, it all got shut yeah. down. So, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is sort of... There, there are all these sort of yeah. ironies here. Right. And so, you know, I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about what... So, you know, here they are. They've put all this effort into this. They've got definitive proof. There's, there's, no, there's no Nazi bomb. Right. 
And in fact, they were way behind. They did not direct resources into that area. So what are the lessons that are drawn from that that will have consequences some, some better than in others. the future? Um, one of them was, Jesus, if the Germans couldn't pull this off, right? I mean, look, building the atomic bomb for the United States was a huge undertaking. The only reason we could do it was because we had the economic power to not only spend $2 billion in 1940 money on the Manhattan Project, but also plenty of money left over to build bombers and fighters and ships and everything else. That's what every other country on earth had to make that decision. They had to make that choice. Germany, that's right. So Hitler literally made the decision. Albert Spieler and Werner Heisenberg went in front of Hitler and said, we can build this bomb but it's going to cost a ridiculous amount of resources. Right. And so Hitler said, all right, well, I'm not going to go with the maybe we can build this. I'm going to go with I know for a fact I can build tanks and bombers and everything else. Everyone had to make the decision but us, right? We could do both at the same time. So we said the only way this thing can be built is if you have that economic power, if you put all your basically eggs into one basket, and if you have the greatest scientists in the world all shoved into one place, that was an interesting lesson to learn. And it was a really bad lesson to learn because everyone assumed that there was a magical secret about the atomic bomb. And I, and I think that this is something where I, I've, I've been fighting my entire adult career about the atomic spies, like the one you assume this book was about when you first started hurting the title, about the Rosenberg, Klaus Fuchs crew, about how impactful they were. And I argue that they were m not very at all. Right, that they had a little bit of an impact, but not very much. And people are like, well, they told them how to do the bomb. They even said they, they gave them the secret of the bomb. Well, Glenn Seaborg has a really interesting quote in here. And Glenn Seaborg was a guy who discovered plutonium, got a Nobel Prize for it. He was the head of the Atomic Energy Commission after World War II, part of the Manhattan Project. Super important dude. They, there's an element called Seaborgium named after him to tell you how important he is. He very, you know, famously said the only secret of the bomb was whether it would work or not. And Hiroshima and Nagasaki kind of proved that to the world. And so after that point, it was just basic science. So the Soviets didn't have to go through all the process, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little mm -hmm. bit, didn't have to go through the whole process of figuring out would this work or not, doing all these experiments, trying to figure out, you know, is this going to be worth the money? They knew it was worth the money, right? They understood that it was a game-changing weapon. And so the spies, they had a little bits and pieces here and there of importance. But this is basic science. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, there's yeah. there, there's there's a lot here, but I think it's uh, uh, let's let's move on yeah, to the Soviet. Well, but it. I mean, it is one of the interesting things that you know uh, there are conclusions that are drawn. First of all, from the American success mm -hmm. and, and the fact that well, we managed to do it and the Germans didn't. So what does that mean about us? Right. And there are conclusions drawn from the fact that the Germans didn't, and and all those are good to keep in mind as we move forward. Right. Well, and there's some great conclusions about like, the, the really kind of getting into political science or understanding like types of governments. Vannevar Bush wrote a book right. about this. Others wrote books about this, right. focusing on totalitarian systems versus free enterprise. And that was something that really drove this. Like, we, did a, we did a victory lap, right? Yep. Saying like free enterprise, oh, and the absolutely. capitalist system helped us to win the war and build the bomb. And the Germans were too rigid and too kind of they didn't have the ability to do anything because they were so, and of course they extrapolated, everyone looked at the Germans and the Soviets as being the same types of system, right, where you couldn't speak out. Well, let's uh, move on to that yeah, because yeah. this is, that's the interest, that, right. this gets really interesting. And, um, and, and, and as I say, I think when you go into the Soviet case, and of course, I mean, that story is well known, yeah. right? The fact that the Americans, again, vastly underestimated here how long it would take, or um, overestimated, I'm sorry. Right. The Americans vastly overestimated how long it would take right. the Soviets to develop their own atomic bomb. Um, we're incredibly surprised when in 1949 they found evidence that the Soviets had and then had to go back and try and figure out why in the world they got it wrong. And their conclusion was, basically, we didn't. Well, <laughs> one of their big conclusions was spies. Well, yes. Right? I mean, that was, I mean, that's been yeah. a conclusion yeah. now. That in other words, our estimates weren't wrong at right. all, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so we didn't get it wrong. It's, it's not our fault, right? What's, it, what's amazing is, I, I love this story, is the Office of Reports and Estimates, which, whose job it was to do exactly that estimate, put out an estimate about the, the, the Soviets will, will get their first atomic bomb most likely in 1953. That was the most probable date. Now, the last time they released that estimate 
was a full month after the Soviets had detonated their first atomic bomb. How bad is that? I mean, that is extraordinarily bad. We are estimating now four years into the future after they've already detonated their first atomic bomb. That's how far off we were in many circumstances. And of course, you know, can't help but sort of hear those echoes um, from, the, from the war, you know, well, if, if we could do it, right. why can't the Soviets do it, right? Um, and yet, that that wasn't that uh, that wasn't any kind of driving influence toward um, putting in place uh, an American intelligence effort. Well, it was right? the other way around, right? Exactly. Was, exactly. If the Germans can't do it, there's no way in hell the well, Soviets there are going to pull there off. There you go. Right? And yeah. right, exactly. And somehow they draw those completely opposite conclusions yep. about about the Soviets. And the, the book the book is basically it's designed in such a way to have chapters that are in parallel with each mm -hmm. other. One in six, two in five, three and four. Now, one is where I really talk about the fact that we were terrified of the Germans and all the reasons for it. Six is really where I hunker down that we thought the Soviets were buffoons. And not only stupid scientifically, and, and, and that is a major, major importance when you're talking about the atomic bomb, but there's also other reasons like the ability to uh, manufacture this weapon. Right? We, again, we had to build cities in order to do yep. this. And that's where they bring in like the heads of DuPont and the head of Dow and Groves talks to all these you know, Westinghouse guys. And they're like, man, they, they ran their machines into the ground. The best thing I ever saw over there was a two-seated farm tractor. You know, These are not people that can do very like minute, detailed work that you would need for building the atomic bomb. And then they also underestimated their ability to collect actual fissile material, mm -hmm. the stuff that goes inside the bomb. And this really showed... Talk about dissemination of information. This showed a humongous misunderstanding of how uranium works and right. how science works. And, and the scientists are screaming at them like, that's not how it works, right? Like uranium is everywhere. Now, if you put enough effort into it, you can get enough to make a bomb out of it. You don't need these wonderful, now having really good mines of uranium, like in Czechoslovakia or in other places are great but it's not the only uranium on earth, right? But so, it goes back to, yeah. you know, in during the war, Grove saying, gee, the Germans might not do this the same way we did. But suddenly, yeah. after the war, well, the, the Soviets are gonna do this exactly the way we exactly, did it, yep. right? And, you know, we, we know something about their their system, we know something about their resources, and they, they don't have the resources, they don't have the manpower, they don't have the political system to support this, so therefore, you know, we're okay. Well, it was a thing you even mentioned this. The idea is that the Germans do it a very particular way because we attribute to this the fact that they are a totalitarian system and they can't be creative. Well, we look at the Soviets and go, well, they can be even less creative. And so they're not going to think outside the box. They're not going to think of unique ways of doing this. They're not going to do it any different ways. And I even I bring in biological science as an example because Trofim Lysenko is... It, we look back at this and kind of everyone laughs at Lysenkoism. Who knows about it? Basically, it's Soviet biology. But this comes out right around the time we're starting to think about the Soviet bomb. And for American scientists, it shows that the Soviet system is incompatible with doing advanced science. Um, and not just biologists, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which is the journal of nuclear physics, does a whole issue about how Soviet science is not compatible with thinking you know, creatively about science. I'm looking around for some quotes here because there are just so many interesting yeah. ones. Um, and I, I guess, you know, I, I, and again, it, it does seem to go back to a complete, drawing the maybe the wrong lessons or, or maybe trying to apply the wrong lessons to the Soviet case. Because uh, I'm, I'm looking at some of these quotes, you know, they, 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 there's this analysis of what went wrong or what didn't happen in, in the German context, you know, the failure of German physics can in large measure be attributed to the totalitarian, totalitarian climate in which it lived, right? So therefore, there's a totalitarian right. yep. climate in the Soviet Union, so they're not gonna uh, go ahead with this either. And, and here's another one, which it, you have right at the end of your book because it's, it's so powerful. Um, and who is speaking here? I think this is Bush, um, Vannevar Bush. The German military leadership who commanded the program, or as Bush called them, nincompoops with chests full of medals, right? Presided over scientific operations of which they knew nothing. Thus, communications between the scientists and the military were lacking. The system prevented real innovation. You know, according to Bush here, um, 
again, the Soviet society has many of the faults of the German dictatorship magnified to the nth degree, hence it is likely to produce great mistakes and great abortions. Yeah. No, therefore, we don't have anything to worry about. And that's from Modern Arms of Free Men, which came out right. in 1949. Right. Right. I mean, the this is exactly year. what right. we're thinking at the same time. Yeah. And so for me, looking at this is why it was so important and why I couldn't believe that no one who had written about this before had put these programs together. Because you, you can't understand one without the other. You absolutely have to tackle these two, the Germans and the Soviets, and how right. we approach them as a single operation. And that's why actually the, the title of the book, the subtitle, right. uses the word singular operation. Because it's not about two different separate things. I argue against this artificial line of demarcation that you have to look at them together. Now, there, there is a, a little more to it. Um, you do make this point, and I can't remember if it's from you or you're quoting somebody, that this, this failure, because it certainly was recognized as an intelligence failure, they did have uh, a lot of... In I had investigations into looking at why this was a failure, yep. and it don't do talk about it, there being failures outside and inside sure. the CIA. And you, you do go on about some of those outside as well, right? You know, just um, limits on manpower, right? Sure. It, you was, know? it was it was a, a failure of a whole, yeah. right? The entire U.S. government failed, right? And because of the entire U.S. government had the exact same perception of the Soviet system, when when. Truman had to be convinced the Soviets had, had detonated an atomic bomb. It took a while because, as in his words, he thought those Asiatics would never be able to do it. Leslie Groves, for as heroic as he kind of comes across in this book, was asked when were the Soviets going to get the bomb. He said 25 years, maybe right, longer. Right. Now, he wasn't saying they were stupid. He was understanding how much industrial input went into building it. Um, the head of the American rocket program at the time literally says, and I'm going to use this word because he uses it, we thought they were retarded. Yep. And so it was a broader base. And the, Herbert, oh, I'll end this with Herbert York, uh, who is one of a Manhattan Project scientist. He comes, comes across as kind of the next big guy um, of the second generation of people working on thermonuclear weapons. He, he told a joke. He loved telling this joke about the American perception of the Soviets at the time. And he was called into the Pentagon. All the military leaders in the Pentagon wanted to, to kind of see what the threat was. And they said, you know, Dr. York, um, we're worried about the Soviets sneaking a nuclear weapon into one of our cities in a suitcase. You know, like kind of walking in, forget the delivery system, just like walking in off a plane in a suitcase. And York's like, we're not worried about that. And they're like, well, how can you possibly not be that worried about that, right? If they miniaturize and put a suitcase, it could blow up. And he, this is kind of the mentality. He says, well, because the Soviets haven't yet figured out the technology of the suitcase. And that was the, that was the right. mentality, right? right. It's, it's were a bunch of backward bumbling fools that had just overwhelmed the Nazis in World War II with sheer numbers. Yeah. Kind of like we perceive the Chinese during Korea and how we perceive a lot of other things. And so that mentality does not, you talk about after the fact. I include a, to me, a fascinating uh, joint committee, House and Senate brought together to figure out why we screwed this up, why we were so wrong. And of course they conclude it was spies and other things like that. Uh, when someone actually brings up the fact that maybe the Soviets have smart scientists, they mm -hmm. kind of laugh and kind of go, oh, what, what, for real. Their conclusions were everything but that. So in 1957, when Sputnik is launched, we're, we're surprised again. Right, right. And in 1961, when Gagarin goes up, we're surprised again. And that's yeah. one of these things where at some point, finally, we get it through our thick skulls that the civilization that created the periodic table and created you know, some of the most important scientific discoveries in history might know what the hell they're doing. It just took a while for us to figure that out. I, I do think it's interesting what a... What a public failure this was yeah. um i mean you know uh, th this truman announced right after they had evidence you know that the soviets had detonated a, a bomb before they announced right it you too, know yeah. and, and these explanations have to be made not just you know within the government they have to be made to the american public as well as to why we failed which yeah. which is an interesting aspect of it and um Obviously, you know, the Rosenberg story is one that is well known. You made this, uh, had this discussion before about how it's, it's all too easy to pin this on the fact, well, the Soviets stole it from us. Right. In other words, it's nothing that we did wrong, necessarily. It's just that they stole the secret from us. And I think that's something that people still think about today. So, oh, sure. you know, what, what, what is it that the, that the Rosenbergs and others actually did steal? Because we, that they did steal yeah. <laughs> secrets. No, I mean, but, I, I, but, you know... Uh, just develop that argument a little bit more that this is this is a red herring. There's a ton of nuance here. And, and so Julius Rosenberg um, stole a ton 
of American military technology. Uh, things as important as the proximity fuse, which would later shoot down Francis Gary Powers uh, over to the Soviet Union in 1960. Really important conventional military technology. Um, what he didn't do was steal the secret of the atomic bomb. Klaus Fuchs gave them some good information, Ted Hall better than anybody else. Um, but for the most part, what they're doing and where you can actually call this a little, there's nuance to this, is they were backing up what the Soviet scientists were already saying. So Soviet scientists were working on this problem. They were coming up with the same solutions that we did. Stalin didn't necessarily trust the scientists all that well. Leventhe Beria, who was the head of the Soviet NKVD, the Secret Service, was in charge of building the bomb, stealing the secrets or whatever. Didn't trust the scientists either because there's not a lot of trust going around in the Soviet Union. Stalin, remember, has purged a lot of his academics, has purged a lot of his top military leadership in the 1930s. So by the late 1940s, he's a little paranoid about what's happening. So when Igor Kurchatov, when Peter Kapitsa, when some of these top Soviet scientists would say, we can do it X way, they said, well, okay, what do the Americans do? And then they bring back this information, look, the Americans did it the exact same way. Like, okay, go ahead and do it that way. We'll give you money to do it. You know, or we can not do it this way because the Americans tried this in 1941 and it didn't work. So why would we waste money on it? And Beria would be like, well, if you're wrong, I'm gonna put a bullet in your head. And then it would turn out Ted Hall or somebody would send information saying, no, 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 this is how we developed plutonium. This is how we did it. And so the scientists would survive and they would able to do it. So it didn't give them any real secrets. What it did was to confirm this, the physics that was already being discussed inside the Soviet Union. Now that's important, right? That actually matters because it may have delayed them. It probably would have delayed them, not for years. Right. Um, and you know, the information certainly come from the Rosenbergs was garbage. Um, Fuchs, much better. Ted Hall, much better. And then someone like George Koval, who was an actual GRU agent who infiltrated the Manhattan Project that no one talks about, um, had full access to everywhere. He gave some really good information, but it, it really came down to more what Groves was worried about, the manufacturing side of mm. things. It wasn't presenting any kind of physics secrets because the physics secrets were understood back in 38, even before that. It's about manufacturing. It's about the fact that we tried about 25 different ways of separating the, the isotopes of, of uranium, uranium-235 from uranium-238, and we really hunkered down on two that worked really well. One, gaseous diffusion. We turn them into a gas and then separate them that way. And the other was centrifuges, same way Iran is doing it today. And that took some time. It took a lot of money to figure out what the best two ways are. The Soviets didn't have to do that, right? They were told which ways work best. So that saved them some dead ends, it saved them some money, it didn't save them a lot of time. Mainly because, remember, we're fighting the damn war at the same time we're building this bomb. Right. The war's over by the time the Soviets kicked this into high gear. And Groves actually very, I think it was Groves, damn it. Let's call it Groves, so I might have to amend this at some point. At one point is doing an interview or, or doing a testimony, and he says something like, it almost ends up being kind of apocryphal in the end. Where it's like, well, unless they drop everything else, and just concentrate their entire economy on building the bomb, it's gonna take them forever. Well, that's exactly what they do, right? They drop everything else and just put everything behind building the bomb and are able to build it much faster than we think they were. Um, but as you, know. you say in here, you know, there, there, there are a lot of different arguments that are put forward as to why yeah. the US failed, including all you've talked about, the Rosenbergs and other spies, resources and so on, but as you point out, nobody mentions the fact that maybe Soviet scientists actually knew what they were doing. Right. I mean, to, to me, that that is that that's the it, it, it's the it's the elephant in the room. Well, it's the Occam's razor, right? It's right, to keep right, it simple, yeah. stupid, right? Yeah. That the Soviets build a bomb as fast as they did because they had good scientists. Why is that the complicated answer? That's the simple answer, and that turns out, I would argue, be the right one. So, it it's actually fairly unusual um, for a historian to be writing actually about about sort of uh, a, a book about nuclear issues. I mean, we tend to find there's this whole field of, you know, uh, nuclear strategy, which political scientists have taken over and mm -hmm. so on. Um, and of course, we historians always complain that they don't know their history, <laughs> so they're basing, they're putting forward theories, but they're not actually based in anything real. So it, it, it's nice to have a historian writing about this, but one thing that political scientists do do 
is they they uh, they draw all kinds of interesting lessons that are supposed to be of great consequence We're not for, to do for that, today Alexis. and for the future. But you know, maybe historians should do that a little bit too. Yeah, so I can. the question is, what you know, what should we take away from this? It's that is hard that as is, hell. Yeah, I know, but no, I, no, 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 no. I, I think there that's are the answer. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Scientific intelligence is hard as hell. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the things where um, we can, you know, we we've I had Mark Lowenthal on this podcast talking about Iraq and, and the decision mm-hmm. of Iraq, yep. and you worked on the 9/11 Commission report, and a lot of this where you're looking at intelligence from hindsight and how we screwed something up, and a lot of times, people certainly the general public looks at this as kind of excuse making. But a lot of time, the after-action reports are kind of looking back. It's trying to figure out why we the mistake was made because these problems don't get to the level of intelligence unless they're insanely difficult to begin with. Mm-hmm. And then adding, tacking on that scientific element to it just makes it that much more difficult. And so when I talk to people, and I do all the time, about like, why can't we figure out Iran? Well, because we're still arguing about it, not just politically, like I said earlier. We're arguing about the scientific intelligence behind this. We're trying to recruit their scientists, and we're trying to recruit scientists that aren't providing us with disinformation, or you know, or that aren't dangles by the Iranians. You know, the, the Israelis aren't even doing that; they're just killing the, the, the. They've decided it's just impossible. They decided the only way to do this is not to try to spy on them; it's just to try to stop it. And that's where Stuxnet kind of came into play, also. And we just find out that even something in 2019 is insanely difficult to do. Looking back. At 1945, 1946, we can understand why it was hard to do in the first place. Also, um, to me, that's the one of the big arguments here. One of the big issues is that this type of intelligence really hasn't been written about all that much, mm. um, mainly because it's hard as hell to do because of classification. But also, and this kind of somewhat parallels what I was talking about as far as espionage agents not having a scientific background. Most intelligence historians or historians of foreign policy don't have a science background themselves. Right. So you like I had to basically I don't have a formal physics degree, but I had to kind of get one. Mm-hmm. Take a lot of physics classes. I had to sit in on a lot of classes that I you know that were graduate level physics classes. One of the members of my dissertation committee was a high level physicist at the University of Maryland, who you know does a class a physics class on the Manhattan Project, and so it's an extra element that you kind of can't write about this stuff unless you kind of have at least a basic understanding about it. Again, not trying to toot my own horn, but the idea is, you know, outside of kind of the normal purview of understanding history and impact and stuff, I had to bring in a lot of the science element to this to be able to kind of tackle this issue. Um, well, Dr. Vince Hoat, historian of the International Spy Museum, host of Spycast. Except for today, when Except it was for today. The, the curator historian of the International Spy Museum. <laughs> the Nuclear Zavia. Spies, America's Atomic Intelligence Operation Against Hitler and Stalin. It's in all good bookstores right now. Go ahead and buy it. Find out how hard this is. Have a good read. And I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to say that if you order one from the Spy Museum retail store, it can come signed. There so you go. there you go. Bonus. So forget Amazon. Spend you know, a couple extra bucks and get one signed. Holiday gift. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Alexis. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.